So those of you that were with us last week know that I pretty much attacked Christianity, and some of you came back, and I'm pretty excited about that. If you didn't get to see that, there's going to be two sermons that you want to watch to catch you up to where we're at on this series. The first is called Wicked Smart Believers, and it was preached about three months ago. You'll just find it on the website. If you go to daylightchurch.com and hit the media tab, all the sermons that we've done since start are there and, and archived. So you can check that out. We have Chris Booker to help or to thank for that. Chris does a great job. I mean, this guy, we don't pay him, we don't pay him anything. And I give him a raise every week, but it's always a percentage-based raise. And so and I take him to wild eggs every now. That's all it takes is a little bit of wild eggs thrown his way every now and then. But he spends hours every week making sure those videos are posted. So if you ever get a chance to thank Booker, um, thank him. And, and I don't know if you know this, but we've had thousands of hits on our videos. And so it's a, it's a big deal. It's, it's bigger than what goes on in here. So that's, that's pretty cool. So there was Wicked Smart Believers, and then last week was called Moon Landings. You're going to want to watch both of those series, or sermons to get caught up. But today is a continuation of this series, Can You Have a Brain and Be a Christian? Or are these two things mutually exclusive? A lot of people think in order to accept faith, you have to check your brain at the door. And that's just not my definition of faith. I believe faith is trust, and that trust can be evidence-based. I believe there can be good, solid reasons to place your trust in Jesus and make him master and commander of your life. That's what we're going to talk about today, but let's start off with a skeptic's view of Christianity. This is what one skeptic online said about Christianity. It says, Christianity is the belief that a cosmic Jewish zombie, who was his own father, can make you live forever if you telepathically tell him you accept him as your master. So he can remove an evil force from your soul that is present in humanity because a rib woman was convinced by a talking snake to eat from a magical tree. Let's face it, Christians believe some pretty wacky stuff. I mean, there's some hard pills to swallow in Christianity. Just, just the claim that a man walked on water I mean, just one of those basic miracles that Christians tend to take for granted. If you're scientifically minded, if you're, if you're rationally minded, you want to think, really? Are we, really are we supposed to swallow that? And I, I believe there's good reasons to believe that actually happened. And that's what we're going to start to bust out in this series. All right? It doesn't mean that you'll be without questions. It doesn't mean you'll always have all the answers. It just means, like we talked about last week, that you can put enough pieces in the puzzle to get an idea of what your worldview ought to look like. And in my opinion is, when you seek the truth and you search after truth, I think Jesus starts to shine in that puzzle. I think he starts to show up. But I'm going to lead you down a path. It's a 10-step path that I think adds a lot of credibility to Christianity and the Christian worldview. All right? And I'm going to try to present it in ways that I think the average skeptic would not disagree with. I think the 10 statements that I'm about to make Skeptics would have to give strong consideration to them at a minimum, all right? And here's the first one. The first one is that in the early first century, there was this new religion called Christianity that was founded. And so 2,000 years ago from today, there was no trace of Christianity. It did not exist. In the Roman world, there were the Roman gods, the pagan gods, and then there was Judaism and, and you know, a few little offshoots. And way over in the east, there was some Buddhism and Taoism. But Christianity the largest religion on the planet today, did not exist. It was not on the radar anywhere. So sometime right about then, it, it burst onto the scene. This is, this is all historical fact. I don't know any skeptic that would disagree with that. 2,000 years ago, Christianity didn't exist. And then in about 100 AD, at least 200 AD, it was there and going strong. It was based around a central figure, his life and teachings, that of Jesus. Now, whether you, whether you call him a character or you call him a person, 
That's not what I'm talking about here. But this Christianity that burst onto the scene was founded by a character or person named Jesus. This is just hard. It's almost impossible to argue with if you study history at all. Number three, multitudes soon came to worship him as the expected Messiah. God as man. So 2,000 years ago, there was no Christianity. The Jews were expecting a Messiah. They were expecting a political savior, really. Then all of a sudden, over the course of, how, depending on your view, decades or a century or so, all of a sudden, a big portion of the populace, a big portion of the known world was worshiping this guy. This is just, this is just basic history. Now, the early Christians, they claimed that Jesus proved this through not only his teaching and miraculous signs, but by being resurrected from the dead. So the, the Christian claim was, here's why we believe this. This is why this thing is exploding on a scene. is because that guy was dead. And then we saw him alive. Pretty radical claim. We're not, we're not talking about whether this was an accurate claim or not. We're just saying that history tells us this is why it exploded onto the scene. This is what they believed. If he did these, and now we start to get into some if-then statements. Okay, so I've, I've painted a picture that I think every skeptic should, should be able to agree with. Now we get into the if-thens. So if he did these signs, and if it's true that he was resurrected, I think it kind of logically follows that he was superhuman. That he was something beyond human. Now we haven't gotten to the full-blown Trinitarian view yet, but we can say he was divine. He, he was something from God. And if that's the case, then God has intervened in human history. If Jesus was divine, so we've gotten to the if-thens, if he was resurrected, then he was divine. If he was resurrected and was divine, then now God has invaded history. So this automatically dispels the deistic view that God kind of set the universe in motion and spun it like a top and then said, you guys go do your thing. And he just backed off. If Jesus was divine, then that view is wrong because God has intervened in human history. And not only that, he's personal. He is connected on a personal level. He has revealed himself to mankind. Now, if all that's true, if God's personally intervened through Jesus, then the Bible is most likely reliable. Not definitely. And it doesn't lead to an inerrant view of Scripture. It just says that if God went to all that trouble of appearing as a man and revealing himself to mankind, it would kind of make sense that he'd want some people to know about it. And we know that the Bible is one of the prime ways that that story has been propagated. So it starts to make, if, that, if it was true, see my view of the Bible, my view of Jesus isn't based on the Bible. My view of the Bible is based on Jesus. That's a pivotal point that we'll discuss in weeks to come. But I believe in the Bible because of Jesus, not the other way around. A lot of people get messed up over that. But if, if Jesus was true, if the whole deal was true, then the Bible, it definitely kicks up the reliability of the Bible a notch. Now, if the Bible is reliable, then other religions, including Buddhism, Islam, naturalism, and so forth, these, they can be called into question. They contradict one another. We'll talk about that in weeks and months to come. They can't all be right. And so all these ifs lead to this thing that says this may be a centralized religion where God did reveal himself to mankind. And then finally is if all of this is true, people ought to take notice. People ought to respond. I'm not a huge fan of this. I, I always try to use good pictures, and this, is just, this, this isn't a great picture. First off, Jesus is another white blonde guy, which I always have issues with. But it does show something I wanted to share with you. There's this story in the Bible where a prostitute comes in. So Jesus is sitting around with all the religious. He's been invited to a banquet with the religious leaders of his time. You know, these are the big dogs. And so he goes in, and they're having dinner, and this prostitute comes in. And just, 
And in those days, a religious leader did not touch a prostitute. They didn't stay in the same room with one another. She was dirty, needed to be absent. But she busts into the room and busts onto the scene and comes and throws herself at the feet of Jesus. She's heard about Jesus. She's heard about the signs. She's, she's figured out who he is. And her response is to throw herself at his feet and wrap her hair and her face around his feet. And the feet in that culture were a much nastier thing. One, because they walked in sandals everywhere. And two, because there was this religious cultural idea that the feet were unholy. But she throws herself at his feet. And as you can see in the picture, she wraps her hair around him. And it says, he, she washed his feet with her tears. She's crying. And I don't know what she said to him. I, maybe she just sobbed. Maybe she just said, please be mine. I don't, know what, I don't know what she said. Help me, help me, help me. I don't know what she said. But I know the religious leaders at the time were ticked off about it. They're like, if he knew what kind of person she was, he would, he would never let that happen. And Jesus rebukes him for it. He says, are you kidding me? He says, what she's doing is right. He says, what she's doing is good. And I accept her and embrace her. And he said, and this is pretty neat, this is a, a evidence in and of itself. He said, every, he said, for the rest of history, what she has done here today, this story will be told. Isn't that cool? Some little isolated dinner that some religious little dude is at makes such a proclamation. And you know what? Somewhere... On the map, right now, there are probably dozens of preachers talking about this particular story. But do you see that when you recognize Jesus, when you see who He was, when you see that God has intervened in human history and given His revelation to man, there's only one response, and she found it. It's, yes, 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 you're what I've been looking for. So we don't teach this intellectual stuff just simply so that you can go home and go, okay, well, that made sense. We teach it because we hope that you will see him and see who he is. One of my favorite authors put it like this when he, when he talked about coming to know Jesus. He says, you can't listen to music the way you did before. You can't relate to other cultures the way you did before. You can't look at yourself the way you did before. And you can't relate to others the way you did before. You relate to your government different. You relate to your neighborhood different. You relate to your job different. Everything changes. When you've connected with God, this has been my experience, it changes everything. It changes what's important to you. It changes uh, how you treat people. It changes what you do with your money. It changes what you do with your time. It changes what you fill your head with. It changes what you're entertained with. When God invades you, that's what happens. And so all this rational explanation leads me to that central idea of throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. All right, that was my soapbox for the day. Let's get back to the logic. So here's the question. We get to the if-thens, and the if-thens all center on this idea. Who was this guy? This new religion burst onto the scene. All kinds of people started worshiping. Well, who was this guy? And I've asked this question to hundreds, maybe thousands of people, just out on the street on a at a bus stop. I'll start up a conversation. So what's your take on Jesus? I'll be at the mall. What's your take on Jesus? I'll be on a plane. What's your take on Jesus? I say, hey, what's your name? My, my name is HL, and we introduce ourselves. What's your religious background? Well, I'm, I'm, I was formerly Baptist, but now I'm Buddhist, and I'm going to Thailand to study Buddhism. My, I'm not gonna, my question to him is, well, what, what's your take on Jesus? I'm on a bus with an atheist. Well, what's your take on Jesus? He's a Zoroastrian. What's a Zoroastrian? That's a good thing to learn. What's your take on Jesus? You're only going to hear five answers to this question, period. Across the board, five answers. We're going to start dealing with those. Because if the Christian can learn to adequately intellectually process those five answers, 
They can have an intelligent conversation with anybody. They don't have to be afraid of anything. Once you've learned how to deal with those five answers of the big, big question, who was Jesus? And here's the answers you're going to hear. One, you're going to hear he was a myth or a legend. And he was a fairy tale. There's no difference between him and, and some of the fictional characters based around some of the holidays. I'll let you sort that out. I've gotten in a lot of trouble about that lately. You wouldn't believe the emails I got. Don't mention Santa. It's just note to preachers everywhere. But they'll say there's no difference. They'll say it's a fairy tale. Either he didn't exist and people made him up, or he did exist and he, you know, people like got a hold of his message and made it something much, much bigger than it ever was. But he was not God. He was not divine. He wasn't a Messiah. Uh, it just got blown up. That's one option you're going to hear. The second option is you're going to hear he was a great teacher or a spiritual guru. Now, people haven't thought this answer through because to believe two, you actually have to believe one. But we'll get into that later. But a lot of people say, oh, yeah, Jesus was a righteous dude. Man, I really liked him. He had a lot to offer. That, I love your neighbor thing, man. That's jiving stuff. I like that. Number three is he was of God but not God. This is primarily a Mormon or a Muslim view. The Mormons be believe that Jesus was... Uh, and, and this is a short answer, so it, 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 isn't, it, it isn't the whole answer, but they believe Jesus was one God in a long series of gods and that he happens to be God of this particular planet and that if you do the right rituals, then one day you can be God of your own planet in the same way Jesus was God. So, so you see, it's a totally different view. He was of God, from God, but not, not God like the Christian, traditional Christianity has taught. And then Islam teaches that Jesus was a prophet of God. So he was of God as well. He was maybe the most important prophet, maybe besides Muhammad. But they believe that he was a messenger of God, but not God. And we're not going to get into this one. In fact, all we're going to do with today is, is the first one, myth or legend. The rest of them, third, we might not even get into at all. But if you have questions on that, there's a place that you can text online. Questions at daylightchurch.com. Some people will say, I don't know, or I don't care. That's a perfectly acceptable answer. At least it's an honest answer. But I'll tell you a couple reasons why I think that that's not the best answer. One, I'll say it like this. The last breath that you took was a gift that you didn't even think about. It happened without you even thinking. And the next one is not a certainty and it never will be. It's always a gift to you. Now, if there's anything to heaven and hell, if there's anything to eternity, if there's anything to life after death, it seems like it ought to be worth exploring at a minimum doesn't mean you'll come to the same conclusions that I came to, but when you've got two billion people on the planet that say they've found their answer in this resurrected dead man, it seems like it would at least be worth exploring. Then there's other people that think, you know, they think it may be true. I, I, I might even have leanings in that direction, but they say later, later in life. Right now, I don't care. Right now, I don't know. And they think, later, I'll figure this out. When I'm 60 and I've sowed my wild oats and I've done my thing for a while, then I'll start exploring. Well, let me tell you, if this thing is true, if he was divine, if he is the answer, the revelation of God to man, that's 30, 40 years you wasted. If it's true, I'm not telling you it's true. I'm just saying if it's true, you wasted all that time on what could have been truly important, truly filled you with, with life that is true and right and good. And instead, you just decided to waste it on something else. So don't know, don't care isn't the best answer. But it's an honest answer. And then finally, you'll hear some variation of the Christian view, is that he was divine, that he was beyond human, that he was God in the flesh or the Messiah. So we're going to deal with the first one today. 
We're going to talk about, is it possible he was just a myth or a legend? Is it possible this story just got blown way out of proportion? And I'm going to start in London, England. I was in London, England. I was probably 15 years ago now. And we were street preaching. I do that occasionally. Just get up on a bench and talk about Jesus and see what happens. And I always, always am terrified. And I'm always very thankful that I did it afterwards because people come and talk to me. It happens every single time. Long conversations. It's effective. But that's what we were doing, and uh, we were doing little religious inventory surveys and passing out Christian literature and just doing everything we could to get the message of Jesus out. And my wife, Kara, who I don't think is in the room right now, she's in the back helping as well, but Kara comes to me and she's crying, and she's visibly upset. I said, babe, what's wrong? Because I'm I'm an incredible husband, so I put my arm around her. I said, said, what's wrong? She said, don't worry, it's just this guy over here. And I started asking questions, and apparently there was this guy who was a little bit drunk, he and his friend, um, but just really hateful. And she was talking to them about Jesus when he kind of turned on her, and he became, he, he, he became very personal in his attacks. He called her a fat, ugly, blankety-blank, and said, you're such a stupid this, that, and the other, things that you, no husband wants his wife ever called. And she just said, she said, it's cool, it's cool, but I, you know, I just needed to get away from it. Now, as a husband... Right? I went and I kicked him in the face. And so I just wanted to tell you that story and we'll move on. Now, I went up and on my way to him, I thought, okay, just, just breathe. Because I was mad. I was steamed. And so I went up just to listen and kind of see if I could work my way into the conversation. And he was talking to my buddy Bill. And Bill and he were engaging about Jesus. And anytime Bill would talk about Jesus, he would respond about his imaginary pink little bunny. So any, any conversation, I had, to, I had to look for pictures of pink bunnies online this week. That was not fun. Anytime Bill would make a comment about Jesus, he would turn it around and make the same comment about his imaginary pink little bunny. So if, G, if Bill said, but if, if Bill hypothetically said Jesus is the savior of mankind, he'd say, my pink little bunny is the savior of mankind. He said it like that. He'd say, but you don't understand, but... Your, your pink little bunny is imaginary. Jesus was a real person in real history. He says, he says my pink little bunny was a real person in real history. He, he acted like he was cradling his bunny in his arms, and he would do like this. He would just talk real sarcastically, and that's when I kicked him in the face. <laughs> and the conversation eventually went nowhere, but do you see the point he was trying to make? And it's a good point, and it's a point that we need to be able to process. Uh, well, I'll just share this with you real quick. While I was looking for pink bunnies, I found this. And I ordered one for my child. <laughs> but do you see the point he's trying to make? Is, is there any more evidence for Jesus than there is for my pink little bunny? And he didn't see it. It's a figment of your imagination. He never existed. Let's talk about that. And to do that, I want to introduce you to a person that you all should read. His name's Gary Habermas. And he's one of the leading biblical scholars alive today. I, I don't know exactly where you would rank these guys, but if you took the top 50 educated Biblical scholars in the world, he's going to be in that list somewhere, probably inching towards the top. And what Gary Habermas did is he decided he wanted to study all the literature he could find about Jesus. So he put together this team and he said, go collect everything you can find from educated scholars. Don't, don't, Don't just grab anything and everything, but people who know their stuff Find everything they can write about the historicity of Jesus, the historic part, uh, the historic study of Jesus. Find everything you can have and bring it to me. And so he studied 
1,400 modern-day sources from 1975 to the present. Has anybody read 1,400 books in their lifetime in here? Chances are no. But he said, go get it all in three different languages, French, English, and German. So the guy's a brilliant guy, speaks three languages fluently. He said, "Just what? these are the languages I speak, bring it to me. And he studied Christians and skeptics alike. They did not have to be Christian for him to study them. He wanted to know, what is the current scholarship where the historicity of Jesus is concerned? Bring it all to me, and let's put it all together and find out what we all agree on. Skeptics and Christians alike, educated scholars, this is what he came up with. He came up with what they call the four minimal facts. He says, these are the facts that are so strongly attested across scholarship where Jesus is concerned that you could say that they're virtually undeniable. Here's what they are. Number one is that Jesus died by crucifixion. So scholars everywhere, Christian, non-Christian alike, the people who study and know what they're doing agree with that fact. Number two is that the disciples, his, his followers, believed he was resurrected and appeared to them. Notice this doesn't say that he was resurrected and appeared to them. It just says that they believed it. Everybody that studies this stuff recognizes that a movement began where people believed he was resurrected from the dead. Number three is that, that Saul, this church persecutor who was going around um, witnessing to the killing and, and imprisoning of Christians, something happened to this guy and he was changed, radically changed rapidly. Every scholar recognizes this. And then finally, is that James, the brother of Jesus, was radically changed, that something happened to James. So scholars across the board recognize these four minimal facts. Now, what do these four minimal facts that educated scholars say about Jesus, what does that say about the pink little bunny theory? Doesn't it immediately just kind of crush it? In order to be crucified, what do you have to be first? Alive. Real. If they recognize that he was crucified, then there's no question in anybody's mind that he was a real guy. To develop a following, you need to be a teacher of some sort. And they recognize that this guy gathered a, group, a following that eventually became persuaded that he was resurrected from the dead. Now Saul's a different story, and you do have to, you have to figure out what in the world happened. If you're going to believe in Christian, if you're going to attack Christianity, you've got to deal with Paul. You've got to deal with him. But we'll deal with that in a later date. Brother James. What does it take to convince your brother that you're God? How many times did James hear Mary say, Jesus, take out the trash? How many times did he see Jesus as a normal? And, yet, and he was not a Christian. He did not follow the disciples, but something happened to James. Where he bowed down and worshipped his brother as God in the flesh. What in the world? But you see, just to have a brother, just that the scholars recognize Jesus had a brother, what does that make him? Makes him alive. Makes him real. Now, I realize that this is what's called an argument to authority. It means I'm basing my entire argumentation about what the authorities are saying. And that's why I want to recommend a book for you. It's called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Mike Lacona and Gary Habermas. This is where they compile all that information and where they got their four minimal facts and a fifth fact that's 75% attested by scholars. But they will run you through why scholars believe this stuff. We don't have the capacity to do that in our time frame. But do you see that if you ask educated people, was Jesus a pink little bunny, they're going to say, are you kidding? No. That's so ridiculous. In fact, let me introduce you to a guy named Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman, it's safe to say that Bart Ehrman is one of the leading skeptics alive today. Like atheists and skeptics love Bart Ehrman. Uh, he, 
he, he was a Christian. He found some discrepancies in the Bible, and he, he, he turned away from Christianity. He's written books called Misquoting Jesus. Um, he, you guys are reading his quote and not even looking at me, and I'm hurt by this. <laughs> anyway, he's not a Christian, and this is what he said. He says, I think the evidence is just so overwhelming that Jesus existed that it's, a sil- it's silly to talk about him not existing. I don't know anyone who's a responsible historian who is actually trained in the historical method or anybody who's a biblical scholar who does this for a living because have any, any credence at all to any of this. This is a guy that I, I think it's probably safe to say that more Christians have been influenced away from Christianity than anybody else. Lord Ehrman. I, I, I consider him one of the leading people in turning people away from Christianity. And yet this is what he says about the pink little bunny theory. He says it's ridiculous. But that doesn't mean Jesus was God. All it means is that he existed, that he was a real flesh and blood human being. So let's go further. Anybody ever played the telephone game? Yeah? Telephone game is I come over here and I whisper something to Kaylee and she whispers it to Carl, passes it on, Ashley Wright. No, no, I'm getting there. And all the way to the back of the room to the people that I can't see back there. You know I can't even see you guys most of the time. Back in the back of the room. Now, is the message that gets back there anything like what I whispered in Kaylee's ear? No, of course not. That's how the telephone game worked. That's why it's fun. That's why it's funny. Maybe the Jesus gig went down like that. Maybe 2,000 years ago, there, there was a, a teacher that had some revolutionary teachings, and he was really all about peace and love, and, and, and maybe some spooky things happened, like people that were sick weren't, you know, weren't sick anymore, and then all of a sudden that turned into stories where he was laying his hands on blind people and they could see. Somebody said, that ah, Jesus, he's a righteous dude. And some other Jew goes, yeah, but only God is righteous. And somebody goes, well, Jesus must be God. I mean, maybe, maybe it just developed over time like that. Something we ought to talk about. <laughs> so surprised, that's what I'm going to do. Here is a statue of Buddha. There's lots and lots of Buddhas out there. Siddhartha Gautama is the actual Buddha. I'm not even sure if I say his name right, but these are the dates that he lived. Approximately 560 to 483 B.C. So about 500 years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene, this guy, the Buddha, which was a title, not a name, the Buddha is fed up with a lot of stuff, and he goes and sits under a tree, and he, he meditates for a while, and he develops a philosophy of suffering. Well, it's not until about 100 or 200 A.D., that anybody worships Buddha. Buddha doesn't become God for about six or seven hundred years after his life. You see, this is plenty of time for the telephone game. This is not at all what you see in the case of Christianity. What happened with Christianity happened rapidly. Bam, bam, bam. And we can prove it. We can show that that's true. And in fact, some of you came in here with copies of letters in your pocket or in your purse that you didn't even realize are such strong evidence. One of them is called, whoops, I'm skipping way far ahead. Oh, I'm not. I'm good. Sometimes I talk to myself during my sermons. First Thessalonians. So First Thessalonians, we think of it as a book of the Bible. When in reality, what it is, is it's a letter that one guy wrote to a church. Back in the first century, he had some things he wanted to say to the church, so he scripted a letter and he sent it off. That's what it is. You carry in your hand a collection of writings and letters and poetry and psalms and music and all kinds of stuff. But let's just look at it at that. It's a letter. And here's what we find out. It was by 50 A.D. So, so everybody, everybody dates Thessalonians between 49 and 52 A.D. Skeptics, Christians alike, this is what, when they say 1 Thessalonians was written. All right? 
And we find out that by this time, there's a letter circulating where a church has already been established in Thessalonica. All right? Thessalonica is far removed from Jerusalem. It's pretty far away by horseback or boat. But we know that this, this church has been established over there. And this church has influenced other churches. So we've already got churches in Macedonia and Achaia, other, these other churches springing up. And we find out in this letter that um, they believe Jesus was raised from the dead and would come back. So we know that by 50 AD, there's churches springing up. Salvation is received through Jesus. Even, you don't have to treat it as the inerrant, inspired word of God to recognize that this is a letter passed from one guy to a church, and that's what they were believing at the time. You only have to treat it like every skeptic should treat it, as precisely what it is, a letter. An ancient letter that we happen to have a lot of evidence for that we still have an accurate copy of. We can talk about that later. You go to Galatians, which most scholars date precisely at 49 AD. I know the slide says, what, 48 to 57, something like that. Not very many scholars anywhere dated anything besides 49 AD, and they have the reasons for that that you can look into. But we find out by 40... Now, who knows? In what year or years was Jesus supposed to have lived and died? Anybody have a good idea? Yeah, 30, 30, 30 to 33 is pretty much the scholarly consensus across the board. Now, we've got this letter written from a church in 49 AD showing that they were worshiping him as God. There's already this church in Galatia, which is far removed from Jerusalem. It's existed long enough to become corrupt. They believe Jesus was raised from the dead, and salvation comes through him. And we find out, this is really interesting, we find out Paul, Saul, that was transformed, we find out that he's been teaching this gospel for 17 years at this point. Read it yourself. 17 years I've been proclaiming this gospel that Jesus was the Son of God and was raised from the dead. Do the math. Works out quite nicely. And in 1 Corinthians, where you have your first Christian creed, we find out uh, that there was a church at the time that believed the literal death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he had appeared to Peter, he had appeared to the rest of the apostles, he had appeared to 500 people, and that salvation was found through him. He appeared to James and Peter, or, I'm sorry, James and Paul. So we've got these testimonies of people within 20, 21, 22 years of people saying, I met him, I talked to him, he appeared to them, he appeared to these people. And you find the first Christian creed is found in, in, in 1 Corinthians, and, and a lot of scholars like Gary Habermas and others date it to within three years of the resurrection. That's stuff you can research on yourself. But, he, but do you see the difference between this and Buddhism? 700 years across all of Asia, there's a lot of room for the telephone game. There's none of that here. There's no room for that. They're early on, they were establishing churches preaching this gospel, and they were doing it all over the world. Now, I have to make a decision, because we're supposed to be done in four minutes. Mm. I, I heard somebody mumble. What did you mumble? I'm, I'm hoping that's what you said. I'm going to preach. But that's the Bible. That's what a skeptic says. I don't want to hear the Bible. I don't want to hear Galatians. I don't want to hear 1 Thessalonians. You're not treating it like the Bible. You're treating it like letters, which is honest. But let's okay, let's say that. Is there anything outside of Scripture that you can give me? Yes, as a matter of fact, there is. There's this guy called Cornelius Tacitus who wrote about 115 A.D. He would be considered one of the leading scholars of ancient Rome. He knew his stuff where Rome was concerned. He wrote about a time, 64 A.D. Here's how we know he was writing precisely about 64 A.D is because he's writing about the burning of Rome. And, we, and historians know Rome burned in 64 AD. So he's writing this passage in the annals 
about the burning of Rome, and this is what he says. He says, Nero, Emperor Nero, fastened the guilt for the burning and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, so you guys recognize the name Christians and Christus, right? We probably have a clue who he's talking about here. It says he suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So the extreme penalty in ancient, in, in ancient Roman literature is always crucifixion. That's what they called it. Crucifixion was the extreme penalty. So he says, this Christus whom the Christians follow was crucified during the reign of Tiberius Caesar at the hands of one of our procurators, another name that you'll probably recognize, Pontius Pilatus, or in, in, in modern day English, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate put this Jesus to the cross. He's the one the Christians follow. And this mischievous superstition broke out. What would that be about? It says it was checked for the moment when he died, but then again it broke out not just in Judea, so not just in Jerusalem, but all the way to Rome, which is really far away. I'll show you in a second. All the way to Rome, the source of the evil, even in Rome, where all, he didn't like Rome, all things hideous and shameful, every part of the world find their center. And he says, accordingly an arrest was first made of all who pled guilty. So he arrested all these Christians that admitted they were Christians, and they tortured them for information. And it says, upon their information, it says, an immense multitude was convicted. Not so much of the crime of firing the city, not for burning the city, but for hatred against mankind. They were haters even back then, Christians were. That's what they were labeled. They were the haters. Even in 64 AD, and they burned for it. It says, mockery was added to their deaths. They were covered with skins of beasts. They were torn and perished, nailed to crosses, doomed to the flames, and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight expired. Nero used to burn Christians to light up his gardens at night. So now you've got Jerusalem, Way down here, I'm going to paint a map about this big. Jerusalem's way down here, and Rome is way up here. And by horseback and boats, this thing is spread to the point by 64 AD that an immense multitude was willing to die for this Jesus. Now, Tacitus could have used all kinds of words here. He could have said a big crowd, a bunch of people, a few dozen. He picked the biggest words in his vocabulary to describe the number of people who died. This thing spread fast. And so you have to ask, when did the myth arise? I'll close with this and we'll keep going next week. Philip Schaff wrote a, a seven-volume set called The History of the Early Church. And in that, which was, which was early in the, in the 1900s, it's about a 100-year volume, a 100-year-old volume. And he estimated that by 100 AD, there were about... On me, guys. Okay, I'm, all right, all right, hold on just a second here. We're going back to Tacitus, so you'll ignore him. He estimated that there were about half a million Christians by 100 AD. That's outdated research at this point. There, there's a place called the Center for the Research of Global Christianity. It's at Gordon-Conwell University. And they've crunched the numbers and done all the geometrics, and they've come up with the number 800,000. So they say that by 100 AD... There were about 800,000 Christians on the planet. Now let's go back to our chart, and you can see what happened in the first century. You can see that it went straight up. That's what happened. Where Christianity was concerned, boom, it just launched onto the scene. Now understand, we think of 800,000 people, and we think, well, that's a lot of people. In, in, in 33 AD or 100 AD, 800,000 was a significant portion of the population of earth. It was much more substantial than it is now. It was nowhere near the number of people on the planet. 
So this mass proportion of all the known people embraced this dead man that came back to life. Bam, like that. So when did the myth arise? Because if you ask a skeptic that, they have two answers. They can either say, well, it happened very early. They can say people blew it out of proportion in the first couple decades. And do you see why no skeptic would want to do that? That that just blows the whole myth idea out of the water. Or they can say, well, it happened later. It happened in 2 or 3 or 400 AD. It was in 325 when the official, you know, when Constantine made the edict that Christianity was a state religion, and then all of a sudden, if they do that, then how do you account for the massive amount of people uniformly across Europe, Asia, Africa, worshiping this resurrected dead man? Because you'd have to have some kind of transition from the past view of Jesus to the new view of Jesus, which never happened anywhere in history. Do You see, there's no comfortable date for the skeptic. There's no comfortable place for the skeptic to say this thing was a myth or a legend. This is an illustration I did just to give you, and it's just an illustration. This is not historical at all, okay? This is Photoshopped by a guy that wants to show you something. Down in the bottom right is Jerusalem, okay? This is Judea. This is where the whole thing went down. And then all of a sudden, very rapidly, you start seeing it spring up at churches around the known area. You see up in the top left, we'll go back, go back one. That's Rome, that little dot up there. That's Rome. You see how far that is by horses and boats? But we know that by 64 AD, there was an immense multitude there willing to die. And it just spread like wildfire. and captured a huge portion of the globe. Nobody the day after the crucifixion would have gotten together and said, you know what, one of these days that Jesus story will cover the globe and billions will follow him. When people, messiahs at the time would teach their stuff and they'd inevitably die, you know what happened to the movements? They died. This one didn't. This one exploded. What accounts for that? I'm going to close with this question. And we'll get back to some of this next week. What would it take to go into a deeply religious country, something like Nepal or Iran or Saudi Arabia, Myanmar, and in a couple decades, revolutionize their religion? It would be really hard to do. You'd need something spectacular to happen. And yet that's exactly what happened, not just in Judea, but across the Roman Empire. Jews who had, had, had followed Judaism, followed the law, their whole lives, their entire identity was wrapped up in Judaism, started converting to this radical new faith following this Messiah. Pagans who had worshipped Dionysus started abandoning the temples. The temples stood empty. That's why they hated the Christians. Because something happened. I feel like the rise of Christianity, the explosion of Christianity, is solid evidence that something amazing did happen. Something miraculous. And then you have to ask, well, what was that? What were all these people willing to burn for? What were they willing to die for?